turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is the Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome to the Jenna Ellis Show. I'm Jenna Ellis, and first I have to start off by saying thank you so much to everyone who has DM'd me, sent Facebook messages, tweets, all of that for my birthday today. November 1st is always such a great day, and I always think that the sunrise on November 1st is just a little more pink and sparkly um, on my birthday, and I think that God does that on purpose to let me know he is there and he is not silent, and it's great. And I actually loved that my friend Steve Cortez, I actually texted him this morning, he uh, posted or tweeted a picture of the sunrise this morning and was like, how beautiful is this? Had no idea, uh, you know, my personal affinity for my birthday sunrise. And I'm like, see, even Steve sees it. So uh, that was really fun. So thank you so much to everyone. It has been um, a great day so far. And I hope that this year in my life uh, will be even more um, of a testament to the faithfulness of the Lord in my life, and I hope that we all uh, live out all of our years that God gives to us, uh, growing in the grace and knowledge of Him and having our lives serve to be a testimony to uh, His interaction with us, His love for us, and um, truly His faithfulness in our lives. So uh, before we get to the topic of the day today, which is, of course, the Supreme Court, um, I want to talk to you about my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Uh, gold offers a hedge against inflation and protects you from the volatile financial markets. So now is the time for Americans to take steps to protect your finances and retirements. When times are turbulent, you need an asset that protects you. And that's why I believe in investing in gold and trust my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Their team of experts has decades of experience helping Americans like you and me make the right decisions for ourselves and our families. So call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide. So today I listened to the entire about hour and a half uh, long oral argument in the Texas SB8 uh, argument in front of the Supreme Court. And of course, that is the Texas law that allows uh, private citizens to sue civilly um, if they have incurred harm uh, for abortions. And of course, this has stopped and, and just ground to a halt abortions in Texas. And uh, this was a really fascinating argument, frankly, because abortion itself was not on the table. That's going to be in the Dobbs versus Whole Women's Health uh, case that is going to be argued December 1st. That case is going to contemplate in the certified question, meaning what is 
on the table, what is at the bench in front of the court, the certified question. Uh, in the Dobbs case is uh, whether um, any pre-viability abortions um, are constitutionally uh, prohibited. And so that's going to directly address Roe versus Wade. But today, the Texas law uh, was really fascinating because the certified question is this, and it's kind of long and we'll break it down, but it's whether a state can insulate from federal court review a law that prohibits the exercise of a constitutional right by delegating to the general public the authority to enforce that prohibition through civil action. So what does that mean in common parlance? Basically, can private parties plead constitutional and civil rights defenses when sued by other parties? Um, So the obvious answer to this is, of course, yes. And as um, our friends at the Beckett Fund so well said in just a very a very short five-page amicus brief that they filed, they gave the examples of uh, how religious institutions, for example, can be sued and, of course, raise uh, constitutional defenses and civil rights defenses like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, like the um, like First Amendment defenses and free exercise defenses, and those are all in the context of civil claims. And so really the bottom line of what's going on, and I'm really excited to have um, my good friend Ken Paxton, who is the Texas Attorney General was actually there uh, with the Solicitor General at the oral arguments today. He's going to be joining me in just a few minutes. And then also um, my dear friend Josh Hammer is going to join us after that to break this down further and kind of what this means for the future of the court. Um, But basically my takeaway from this and listening to the argument is that um, the Attorney General here is really trying so hard to, of course, you know, sued Texas. Um, Their their whole argument is is actually focused on keeping abortion on demand. And they are jumping through hoops, bending themselves over, manipulating the law into pretzels to try to make abortion on demand still a thing in Texas. Because this boiled down to his entire argument, the petitioner in this case, um, the entire argument was asking the court to enjoin or, or basically prohibit clerks of court from just receiving and docketing lawsuits that are filed under SB8 in Texas. And his theory on this, which which was wild, and I can't believe that this is actually, they're thinking this is a viable judicial uh, claim and a, and, a, and a good argument in any sense. Um, his claim is that clerks don't perform just the ministerial function of docketing a case, but that they actually are some kind of enforcement mechanism of the law by docketing a case. And so, I mean, consider this to its logical conclusion. If the court, if the Supreme Court, a majority actually says that clerks are part of an enforcement mechanism of the law simply by docu- like docketing and documenting a case, that would mean somehow that clerks have not only the arbitration capacity to decline cases and say, oh, this isn't sufficient for legal merit reasons. Um, They can decline cases and refuse to do their job. I mean, this was the entire point of the clerk out of Kentucky. Remember that case when uh, the same-sex marriage decision of Obergefell versus Hodges uh, was handed down and the clerk, Kim Davis, out of Kentucky uh, was saying, you know, I refuse to, uh, to, to push out marriage licenses 
um, and sign marriage license in my capacity as a clerk. And the courts overwhelmingly said, well, this is just a ministerial function. This is a function of your job. You aren't, by signing it, you're not participating in some, in, in a, um, in a judgment call or designating your moral worldview on marriage just by being the clerk and actually signing a marriage certificate. That's not an enforcement of any sort of law. But isn't it interesting how the leftists will use the very same arguments that they said aren't viable and aren't plausible. And by the way, I didn't agree with that case at the time. Um, you know, I thought it was not argued well under a theory of free exercise of religion um, for this very reason, because a clerk of court um, is is just a ministerial capacitor, basically a, a function of literally just a clerk has no enforcement or constitutional authority in terms of being, um, or even, you know, state constitutional authority or legal authority in the sense of making any sort of determination or using any, um, official capacity in the sense of arbitrating or making any decisions on the merit of, the suit or the merit of the marriage, for example. And so that wasn't a good argument then, but now that the leftists think that it serves their purpose, they're saying that it's a good argument now. And what's so insane about all of this is that the leftists, I think, um, no doubt if abortion on demand were not the real issue here, Texas would absolutely win 9-0 just based on the arguments presented. I mean, if you think about it, this is the best argument that the left can possibly give t- uh, against this Texas law. That means that this is pretty good in terms of the statute construction and in terms of how much uh, the the state of Texas is trying to enforce uh, their own statutes. And state sovereignty is a thing. Uh, Ken Paxton tweeted earlier that he's there to enforce state sovereignty. And guess what? That's a great thing. And that's also going to be on the table, um, be in front of the court in the Dobbs case. And I've said for you know years now that the easiest way that substantively um, the court can gut Roe versus Wade is to simply recognize federalism and state sovereignty. But to say somehow that they have the, uh, the posture and the authority to enjoin or stop a state-level clerk from merely docketing a case because somehow the leftists don't like the substance of the law, that would set a terrible, terrible precedent uh, by saying that there's some kind of arbitration or um, access to justice or enforcement uh, that clerks possess. So I think it was... um, really poorly argued by by the left and uh, the Solicitor General, uh, General Stone, who uh, presented the arguments on behalf of the state of Texas, did a really good job uh, by responding to this. And I also um, was really annoyed, and, and I frequently am, by Justice Sotomayor, who you can always tell uh, which side she's on, especially on the political hot button ones, because she tries to eat away the time of uh, whichever side she doesn't like by asking these sort of long-winded, overbloviated questions that come across just as political speeches, frankly, and just eats into that time. And she tried to throw him off um, at the end 
uh, by asking kind of this absurd question about Congress. And his response to it was actually totally brilliant, very succinct, and he got back to the main point. So I think Texas did a really good job of defending this. Um, whether or not the, the uh, majority of the court is actually going to go based on common sense precedent or whether they're going to be more activist uh, remains to be seen. And I think that these particular cases that are very politically charged are going to very quickly show us whether or not we do actually have a conservative majority or uh, if we still have an activist court. And when I say conservative majority, that doesn't mean that my view or your view or Republicans, you know, win all the time. It means that the text of the Constitution, the separation of powers, the specific limited powers of the federal government, federalism, state sovereignty, all of those things should be enforced by the court regardless of anyone's position on any particular political issue. Policy and politics are reserved to the two political branches. That's why we have debate in Congress. That's why we have elections. That's why, you know, judges on the federal bench are appointed. They have a lifetime tenure. They're not supposed to be political. But often and unfortunately over the last 50 and 60 years, the political nature of the court um, has gone so far beyond the original intent of Article 3 and the point of judicial review and the point of the judiciary being the weakest branch of government. It was supposed to be the weakest because it's not political, because it can't create law, it can't legislate from the bench. It can only hold the two political branches accountable. That's the entire function of what the judicial branch actually serves. So we're going to talk coming up with um, my good friend Ken Paxton and get his take on this. And before we do that, I also want to talk about one of my other good friends. Of course, I'm talking about Mike Lindell. Um, you have all helped build MyPillow into the amazing company that it is today. And Mike has an amazing offer for my listeners on his standard MyPillows. You can receive a MyPillow regularly, $69.98, now only $19.98. So definitely stock up for Thanksgiving, Christmas. Um, my family loves doing Christmas, actually, all uh, starting today all through the new year. So uh, you can receive deep discounts on all MyPillow products, such as MyPillow towels, mattress topper, my slippers, and so much more. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square to receive Mike's standard MyPillow for just $19.98 and use promo code Jenna. That's J-E-N-N-A so that you can get this offer just for my listeners or call 1-800-564-8475. That's 1-800-564-8475 or go to MyPillow.com and make sure you use the promo code Jenna. Remember that MyPillow is made in the USA and our good friend Mike Lindell has been canceled from so many storefronts. I'm so uh, privileged that he is a sponsor of this program. I love supporting him and his great products that are made in the USA. And, you know, we got to say, let's go, Brandon. Joining me now to discuss is my good friend, Ken Paxton, who, of course, is the Texas Attorney General and also is uh, one of our amazing board members on the Election Integrity Alliance. But most importantly for today uh, was actually at the Supreme Court for the two cases that were heard on the abortion issue. And uh, Ken, I want to start out with uh, talking about this first case about SB8 in Texas. I just thought it was absolutely absurd what uh, the petitioners were arguing in this case. How on earth can they think that a clerk has anything more than a ministerial role? I thought your solicitor handled it so well. 
Well, no. So it's 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 a, it's a great question, and and I think Judge Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, got to it pretty well. He asked the Solicitor General of the United States, "Has have has have you ever seen a case ever where a a, a court, whether it's the clerk of the court or whether it was a judge, has been enjoined from taking any cases before they were filed?" And she had to finally answer the question, no, we've never seen it before. So what they are asking for is an extraordinary remedy. And, you know, I, I hope that they don't go down a path that they've never gone down before. I do, too. And, you know, it's really clear, I thought, that if this were not truly to the petitioners about abortion on demand and abortion as a political topic, we wouldn't even be here and this would be a 9-0 decision. So how confident are you in uh, what appears to be kind of the moderate uh, folks on the court now that they will be originalists and that they will put aside that political issue in favor of what clearly would be a bad precedent? You know, I wish I could tell you I, I knew how this was going to turn out, that it was going to turn out well for us. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there's anybody can tell from those arguments what's going to happen. It's clear that some of the justices are not for us. I think it's, I think it's, it's clear that some of them are for us. Um, but how the how the how the middle group is going to turn out, I, I, I really I don't know. I just I think you're right about it being um, a constitutional right that that they are that a lot of them really want to want to protect. Um, despite the fact that it was it was never in the Constitution, it was it was a created a court created constitutional right. Yeah, and you know, and I thought that also um, for uh, General Stone, who was arguing on behalf of Texas as well, also articulated that very well and got that in to say, you know, obviously, um, like some of the Amicus filings um, objecting to. Um, abortion as a constitutionally protected right, which obviously this case was much more about um, the posture and procedure of um, enforcement of SB8. Um, but also, you know, and, and I know that as one of the litigants, um, you know, it's, it's difficult necessarily to, to comment on some of the specific justices. But if you can, um, I was actually kind of surprised with the line of questioning from Justice Barrett, who um, I think, you know, when President Trump nominated her, all of us were um, were pretty convinced she would at least be an originalist. But she seemed um, to kind of, I think, undermine uh, some of the arguments from Texas. Uh, what did you make of some of her questions? You know, I, I have to agree. It, it did not seem like she took a positive approach to, to our arguments. Um, I would say overall, you know, she's probably not been what was expected from uh, President Trump's picks. And, uh, you know, she's obviously new and, and she has she, she has more to, to be a part of. So hopefully that trend is, is not, the, not a bad trend, but hopefully we'll get some rulings in our favor. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so this, this second case as well um, that is, you know, is dealing with uh, Texas and, and um, abortion, talk about that. And that was one that I didn't get to hear the argument on uh, today, but I know that you've spent a lot of time in the Supreme Court today. So, uh, what was your take on uh, that case as well? So it was actually, I think, I think I feel even better about that case than I do the first one. That was the the U.S. government, Department of Justice, uh, claiming that that we were chilling this constitutional right and that they have a right to enjoin um, our state from the Supreme Court has a right to enjoin our state from from enforcing this law. And I really did. 
it did seem like we got more headway in the second in the second argument than we did in the first. But again, I'm speculating. I'm just going after just questions, and I don't really know what's what's in their heads. Right, and it is really difficult. I think um, you know, and that's been been clear for everyone listening. It's very hard to predict sometimes based on the line of questioning. Is sometimes you know the justices will ask questions that they want a response to that seems adversarial, but then they'll actually use the inverse um, argument and, and actually use counsel's responses to the questions, um, you know, in their opinion. So it is really difficult to predict the outcome, but um, but it's always really fascinating. And I agree with you, um, Attorney General Paxton, that. Uh, Justice Gorsuch is, was, was very targeted, very direct and precise in, um, in his line of questioning, and hopefully that bodes well, at least for what we consider probably the most conservative members of the court now, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. Um, but what to, to you, if there is any way that the court decides against Texas, what do you see as um, the danger of this type of precedent? I mean, it seems to me that if they're going to make this the first instance of ever saying, you know, a clerk can't even docket a case. How far out would that extend to just completely uh, ruin access uh, to justice and meaningful uh, petitioning the government for redress? I guess it would mean that whenever they decided that there was a constitutional right, whether it was court created at that moment or court created at another time or actually in the Constitution, that they could they could basically block access to the court. It would be Pretty extraordinary, and I say block access to the courts. I mean block access to state courts. So step into a state and and shut down the courts for that particular issue, which I think is a little bit scary thought to think of a federal court controlling state courts that way. Um, I don't think that's what was intended by the founders. They wouldn't have. Uh, I don't think set up a system that would have allowed that type of power from the Supreme Court. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know this this issue of uh, like you said, political um, abortion aside, if this dealt with any other run of the mill issue, I think you'd get a nine zero opinion in your favor. Um, you know, so hopefully the court will not choose to be activist and uh, decide to manipulate uh, Article three in judicial review and uh, you know, trample on state sovereignty just because of uh, this particular issue. Um, so. You know, in terms of of the um, timeliness of this uh, right now, because obviously this would be an extraordinary measure. Do you think that we're going to get an opinion on this relatively soon, or are they going to wait until kind of the last moment, like in June, when they tend to hand down the more politically driven opinions? No, I mean the fact that they brought this case up so quickly. Uh, as a matter of fact, the only case like this in the last 25 years that I, I know of is the Bush v. Gore case where they switched the timing and made it come up within a very fast period of time. We were given nine days to prepare for this. So I would guess, given the fact they changed our schedule, we were supposed to argue another case today and they moved it uh, to another time in November. I would guess they, they, they were very, very quick on this one and uh, didn't give us a lot of time to prepare. So I'm guessing you'll see a decision from them relatively soon. Well, wow, that's really interesting. And, you know, with only nine days of preparation, that makes uh, your arguments even more impressive. So your whole team did such a great job. And um, I know that you're on your way um, to the airport and a few other <laughs> events in D.C. So um, Attorney General Ken Paxton, I'm so grateful that you took a few minutes um, to explain your posture. And um, I, I really hope that you prevail in this case because it's constitutionally the appropriate thing. But 
thank you so much for always continuing to fight for state sovereignty for the people of Texas and uh, for the U.S. Constitution. Um, just overall, I mean, you are one of the warriors that will continue to fight the good fight, uh, regardless of you know how much of the mainstream media and anyone else comes against you. And I respect you so much for that. So keep up the great work. Well, I really appreciate the encouragement, and um, I uh, I appreciate what you do to 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 expose what's going on because I, I truly believe that if we're not as Americans speaking out now and fighting for our freedoms now, we're not going to have them passed on to our to our kids or our grandchildren. Absolutely. And you are on the forefront as well, fighting um, the unconstitutional vaccine mandates as well, um, you know, with a few other states. So I'll look forward to speaking with you about that, hopefully, as, as that case continues to progress. So uh, good luck there as well. And um, thank you again so much for your time. Thanks, Jenna. Have a great day. And joining me now to discuss is my good friend, Josh Hammer, who is an opinion editor at Newsweek, a fellow at the Burke Foundation, syndicated columnist, contributing editor at Anchoring Truths, does so much work, um, and is also a fellow attorney. So, Josh, um, I just wanted to get your take on the oral arguments today in front of the Supreme Court on this really interesting case out of Texas and what you think the posture of the court is going into this, because obviously they're looking more at the procedural elements of how the Texas law is crafted rather than specifically contemplating abortion as supposedly a constitutionally protected right. So Jenna, always great to be with you, of course. So SBA, which is the Texas abortion law, this obviously has generated no shortage of media attention and oftentimes media misinformation. It, it, it is a procedurally novel law. I mean, you know, as a as your very well-informed audience no doubt knows, obviously, the way the statute is written, it divests public officials from the ability to enforce the statutes, instead relying on private citizen watchdogs of sorts to bring private suits to actually enforce the terms of the statute. But that is what has forestalled the, the litigation up until this point. The Department of Justice, this is the suit is U.S. versus Texas, and you're totally right. We are not actually discussing Roe versus Wade here. We're not actually getting into the substantive 14th Amendment's constitutional law of Roe versus Wade and its murderous successor, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. All of that is off the table for now. Right now, we're just talking about whether the Department of Justice can actually bring this lawsuit. And the question that, that the court is considering, effectively, is whether the court can preemptively, just on an ad hoc case-by-case -case basis, nullify a statute when a state regulation involves the, uh, the alleged infringement of a constitutional right, or in the case of abortion, a constitutional, you know, quote, unquote, right. But the problem is, as you and I both know, Jen, we're both lawyers, the problem is that the court does not have this authority. The court only has the authority to enjoin specific officials who are tasked with enforcing a law from actually then executing the law. They don't have this roving commission style authority to just nullify in advance the entire enforcement of any statutory or for that matter, constitutional apparatus. That is just simply not part of the judicial power of which Article Three of the Constitution speaks. And I, I follow the oral arguments a little bit today. There've been some troubling snippets to be totally honest with you, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, sympathetic to be honest with you to the notion that the court has this power. She's also had some, yeah, no, she. it's true. Uh, Justice Barrett, she, she's been a mixed bag today from what I can tell. Predicting a case based on oral argument is kind of infamously difficult. 
but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic here. This would this would be a wild, wild result if, if the Department of Justice were to prevail here. It really would kind of put all state-level regulation on a whole large swath of issues, not just abortion, but really a whole lot of other issues. It really put that up in the air, honestly. Yeah, and you know, the, the, talking about enforcement, Josh, is really the key question here because uh, the petitioner's argument to me seems like it would create this insane precedent because they're going after clerks as if clerks are any in any level arbiters or enforcement or gatekeepers of justice instead of simply serving a ministerial function. And I thought that what the Solicitor General for Texas responded to what was, you know, Sotomayor's kind of really, really lengthy question. And I hate, honestly, how she tries to eat up time for the side that she clearly doesn't like by kind of pontificating from the bench instead of just asking a precise question. But she asked this question about, you know, well, uh, you know, doesn't Congress have this authority under, you know, this other theory? And his response was, you know, well, that case was a separation of powers issue and the ministerial function of the clerks under um, a specific Texas civil procedure provision, I think it's rule 22, I'm not licensed in Texas, so I'm um, just going based on what he said, he was saying that the specific um, rule of civil procedure is that a case is deemed filed when a clerk actually just accepts it. There's nothing whatsoever that a clerk can do to reject that and to have this kind of arbitrary um, enforcement distinction between clerks and actually raising them basically to the level of judges that they can provide summary judgment and decline to have cases filed, um, I think would create a really bad precedent here. So where do you think if, if the majority of the court actually ends up buying the argument from the attorney general, uh, where do you see that going and how could they possibly the majority create a rule that wouldn't have just this overbroad um, kind of precedent that would be damaging to, to the functionality of the system? It's a totally fair question. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. I mean, look, Jenna, I am barred in the state of Texas. I, I'm actually suing the state, the state bar of Texas myself on a First Amendment freedom of speech action, but that's a whole separate issue that we'll cabin to the side for now. But I'm barred there, and not only am I barred there, I clerked for a federal judge there. I clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit for Judge James C. Ho, uh, based at that time in, in Dallas, Texas. And I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that as a former federal law clerk on, on the Fifth Circuit who was barred in Texas, that I was not, quote, enforcing any laws. That is a ludicrous. I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer to understand that. Think, just use your common sense here. I mean, think about the fact that a, a, a federal judge to begin with, or even, a, or even a state court judge for that matter, from my perspective, cannot be assigned under any kind of linguistic notion of what the word force means, the ability to, quote, enforce a law. That's the entire separation of powers construct on which the Constitution is predicated. Article one, which is the Congress, makes the law. Article two, which is the executive branch. Well, what is the word executive branch? They execute the laws. <laughs> Article three, the judicial branch, obviously, then reviews them for constitutionality and so forth. But the entire judicial apparatus does not enforce law. I, I think it's an erroneous misconception of the word force. You think of a judge as enforcing law, let, a, let alone the law clerk. Are you kidding me? The law clerk doesn't have any sworn constitutional authority under Article 3 of the Constitution. The only person in a judicial chambers, and again, I worked in a judicial 
judicial chambers. I had three co-clerks and a judge. That's how these things operate. The only person in a judicial chambers who is actually exercising sovereign constitutional authority is the judge. The buck always stops with the judge. Again, that's even holding aside what I just explained, that the judge does not actually enforce a law to begin with. But even holding that aside, the notion that a law clerk is enforcing a the law that is just Looney Tunes bat crap stuff. I mean, like it doesn't have to take a lawyer to understand that. But certainly, the fact that this is even getting discussed at the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, is just utterly ludicrous. I, I do too, and I honestly couldn't even believe that this was the best argument apparently that the Attorney General is presenting. And you know, my tweet right after it said, "No doubt, if abortion on demand were not the real issue here, Texas would win nine zero on the arguments pre uh, presented." Let's hope the justices don't turn Article Three into a pretzel for political purposes. And so, Josh, that gets to my next question because you and I have had some um, really interesting offline discussions. I always love reading um, everything that you write. You are and listening to your podcast. I mean, everything that you do is just so well articulated and I encourage everybody listening, follow Josh Hammer on um, social media, definitely listen uh, to him, read everything that he writes. Um, and you had a piece actually back earlier this summer that was talking about the composition of the court kind of being this three, 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 um, like three that are really constitutional conservatives and then three that are sort of moderate, um, you know, the Kavanaugh, Barrett, um, uh, Roberts, and then obviously the three liberals. And so when we now have this sort of uh, plurality of the, of the justices and not really a clear majority, um, why do you think that is? And where do you think that's going on cases like this that are so obviously politically motivated when it doesn't seem like there's really any coherent judicial argument? So my, my good friend, Josh Blackman, who is a law professor at South Texas College of Law in Houston is just um, a wonderful observer and commentator on all things judicial branch related. Um, he's actually working on an op-ed for me right now about uh, today's oral argument in the, in the SBA case. I published that op-ed of his, a Newsweek over the summer, and I, I think the final impetus for that op-ed was when the court failed to grant cert, uh, you know, lawyers speak, that means they did not agree to hear the um, the Arlene's Flower Shop case out of Washington State involving this Christian florist. Um, you know, this has been litigated up and down the court system now for the better part of a decade. It, it, it's a horrible case as far as just your basic right to earn a living and speak freely in your capacity as a baker or florist without having your religious scruples violated. And it was really kind of eye-opening for a lot of us that Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett did, or at least one of the two of them, did not agree to, to, to vote to hear that case. And it happened again, right? I mean, this just happened on Friday. And that's why we're talking about it, obviously. It's the religious liberty case out of Maine, as far as a religious exemption to Maine's mandatory vaccination program for healthcare workers. And, you know, the court denies injunctive relief from the get-go. Justice Barrett and Kavanaugh concur in that. And that is kind of the breakdown here. It's a kind of, at a very kind of broad 35,000-foot overview, you have, you, you have three liberals who are they will never deviate whatsoever from the liberal line under the most extreme circumstances. That's Sotomayor, Kagan, Breyer. Then you have the chief justice, who at this point, honestly, is looking more David Sutherland by the day. Yeah. And by that, I mean, you know, a, a Republican nominee who just on every case where his bread is buttered is just increasingly just overtly and unapologetically siding with the left. And then you have Kavanaugh and Barrett somewhere there in the middle. Gors Gorsuch generally sides with the conservatives, but he's had some bad faux pas. There was the Bostock case on Title VII. Yep. 
um, about a year and a half ago or so. He has some libertarian instincts that are much stronger. And then Alito and Thomas, of course, are the, are the two conservatives. So, look, I, 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 my years of following the court have led me to, <laughs> for, for better or for worse, more generally be pessimistic than optimistic about all things judicial branch related. This is a conservative court in name only in many respects. And look, the beauty gen is at this term, there are some hot buttons. We have a massive gun rights case out of New York. And besides the SBA case at Texas, we of course have the Dobbs case on Mississippi where Roe versus Wade is squarely placed for an up and up or down vote essentially. We're gonna find out a lot about where this quote unquote conservative court stands by the time the Dobbs case comes out in June. But see it. I hate to say it, but I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. So, you know, we, we know the left's posture if uh, the, the court does end up being basically more conservative, their solution is to pack the court and just try to retake an activist majority. Um, assuming that the court actually isn't conservative and we really only have, you know, three more solidly uh, conservative, meaning actually conserving our rule of law, following the U.S. Constitution, not being activists, you know, not that just Republicans win all the time. I mean, that's certainly we don't want to be activists if we understand the judicial branch and, and that separation of powers. Um, but what what then is is our solution in terms of, you know, we, we have, I think, been so frustrated over the last 15, 60 years seeing how the judicial branch has been warped out of um, at completely at all out of its original intent. And there was a moment in time when President Trump had the ability to nominate three different justices that we thought, okay, we're going to get a conservative majority. So um, if that didn't happen, and frankly, I, I blame, you know, the Federalist Society and a few others that are more in the bushy camp for not uh, providing better guidance perhaps on this, but what really is the solution then for the political branches who want to make sure that we are still protecting our U.S. Constitution and actually fulfilling the role of government, which is to preserve and protect our rights? So this is a complicated question. I have a lot, I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, so look, the judicial, nom the judicial nom nominations apparatus um, from a Republican pers conservative perspective obviously is pretty messed up. Um, we don't properly vet our nominees. We don't look for kind of a full prolific track record. Look, even the, even the case of, of, of Justice Barrett, who I still do hold out hope for that, that she'll ultimately be more okay, more okay and more solid than not. Even in her case, you know, I mean, the administration basically said off the top that it was only going to consider female nominees because, you know, Justice Ginsburg had just passed Away. I mean, even that is kind of already preemptively playing into the left's identity politics hands a little bit there, right? But right. in addition to that, one th look, I, I, Justice Barrett is actually a good counterexample of this because she genuinely comes from the American heartland. But in general, we have a very bad habit of nominating people from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit who are kind of inherently piped into the fact that the D.C. Circuit judges already swamp monsters. Um, it, it, you know, this was Chief Justice Roberts. Um, there's a number of examples here. And, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, obviously, was a, was a D.C. Circuit judge, kind of a lifelong Beltway guy. And the problem with this is multifold. One is you literally live in the swamp. By definition, if you live in the swamp, you breathe the air off the swamp, and that swamp is not good for conservatives. But more than that, the D.C. Circuit, the docket there is very heavy on administrative law. And look, I'm no apologist for the administrative state, but the conservative legal movement in general has made way too much, from my perspective, 
out of the administrative state issue over the past 10, 15 years. We've totally forgotten what it is that we actually stand for as far as the more important issues, frankly. That's like Roe versus Wade, questions of national sovereignty, citizenship. I mean, they're frankly are just more important questions than gutting the administrative state, as bad as the administrative state often is for conservatives. So we really need to be looking at like what areas of specialty and expertise judges have actually had as well. I also have actually also said that the next Republican administration should probably put a moratorium on nominating kind of all Harvard Law and Yale Law, you know, alum judges until we can figure out what the hell is going on there because we we just have kind of a, we kind of have a bad record of nominating these people from these truly elite top tier Ivy League schools and you know again by very dint the fact that they're there they risk kind of imbibing some bad ideas again Justice Barrett to her credit does not fulfill that she is again you know already long grad and then finally the another piece of this puzzle is the jurisprudential component, which is like constitutional interpretation. Like that's where I've spent a lot of my recent energy in terms of my writings and output is, you know, I've, I've been kind of the forefront of advocating a theory of constitutional interpretation that I call common good originalism, which is really not that different from kind of traditional Justice Scalia, Judge Bob Bork-esque originalism, but it is a little more methodologically conservative. And I would argue actually is more in in line with our American customs and traditions and more in line with the jurisprudence of some of our greatest early justices like Chief Justice John Marshall and Justice Joseph Story. So I, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on that, but there is kind of a methodological constitutional interpretation piece of the puzzle here as well. Yeah, and you know, for more on that, everyone can definitely go and read um, Josh's great articles on common sense originalism, and there's so much to unpack there. And Josh, I know you're on a really tight schedule today, so I really appreciate you uh, coming on the, the show for a few minutes and breaking this down, and I uh, look forward to having you back again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jenna. All right. Well, that is it for us today on the Jenna Ellis show. Make sure that you are following Josh Hammer on all of his social media. I love always to have him on. And we are going to continue to follow this case. Um, Like I said, I don't think that we will get this opinion for quite a few months. Um, I may be surprised. And if we do, then of course, I will be here to break it down for you when we do receive it. But a lot of times the Supreme Court likes to wait until June. They'll uh, put out their, they'll throw out their very politically controversial opinion. Opinions and then, you know, run away for their couple of months on vacation. So it would not surprise me if we don't get this opinion until June. And of course, uh, the next case in Dobbs, which is the actual um, abortion case that will contemplate specifically overturning Roe versus Wade, that's going to be argued December 1st. And I will be listening to those arguments and definitely will break it all down for you. But until then, I will see you tomorrow right here on The Jenna Ellis Show.